Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Steve Watmore. Steve's the head of global private capital for QIC, the Queensland Investment Corporation. QIC is entrusted with managing a portfolio of $54 billion on behalf of the Queensland government and other institutional investors in Australia and beyond. Steve's been an investor his entire career, starting in 1999 with MLC and then moving to QIC in 2008. And I've had the honor and the privilege of working alongside Steve for many years as we've developed ILPA's advocacy strategy globally. He's also been instrumental in our engagement with the GP communities and an amazing ally and thought partner to me personally. So I'm delighted to have you here, Steve. Great. Thanks, Jen. Lovely to talk to you again. And thank you for this opportunity. I'm really honored by it. So Steve, it seems that you've always had a fiduciary's mindset, but you transitioned to private capital when you were at MLC after an earlier career where you'd focused more on tangible assets, starting off in project finance and then moving to infrastructure. So what is it about private equity that appealed to you on a personal level? And I have to ask the question, have you ever thought about becoming a GP? Yes. To answer the second question first, I think I have seen in investing in private equity around the world, I've seen some of the best private equity firms created, and many of them are actually in QIC's portfolio, just recognizing the caliber of those firms and those individuals. I think I fairly quickly realized that probably my best place in the value chain was a a supporter of those institutions and a co-investor with them. My interest in private equity was really born out of my migration from being in the project finance sector in Australia, realizing that I was more interested in being a principal investor and owning the businesses that I was financing rather than just financing them. I spent a bit of time in the Australian infrastructure market, which was fascinating. But as I was going through that phase and becoming more aware of the private equity sector, which during the 90s was still relatively nascent outside the US, the industry was evolving in Europe and then in Asia. I just found the the asset class fascinating. I, I really was attracted to the multitude of value creation tools and strategies and perspectives that could be brought to either building companies or improving them. I was attracted to the breadth of industries the sector covered. Even then, and certainly today, the industry really touches all parts of the global economy and all industries. So I found that diversity fascinating. And I found the cultural diversity fascinating as well. So when I joined MLC in 1999, I was the third member of a a three-man team. And with my two colleagues, built MLC's program through to the middle of the 2000s. And so I got the opportunity to, as part of a small team, to spend time in Europe, looking at how the sector was evolving there, spend time in Asia. I particularly focused on Japan at that stage. Really being able to see how essentially the Anglo-Saxon investment technology that private equity is gets applied to different parts of the world, and particularly how this question of sort of entrepreneurial spirit expressed in different cultures and different parts of the world, I I found fascinating. 
And my time at MLC, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a great platform and working with two close colleagues there. And then towards the end of my time, expanding the team to include Alicia Gregory, who's now leading the Future Funds uh, private equity program, and also Richard Baker, who was one of the founding partners of Blackbird Ventures, now certainly Australia's most successful venture firm. It was a very nice group of colleagues as well. I know that when you first came to QIC, you were managing the US relationships and investments in the private equity program, but doing so from Australia. But after a relatively short period of time, you relocated to San Francisco. And I'm curious about how different that experience was managing assets out of country and at great distance to managing those assets in country. Yeah, some similarities, but clearly a lot of differences. And the experience of operating out of Australia when we were focusing primarily on, as we did at MLC, primarily on building GP relationships and committing to primary funds. That was a similar experience, I suppose, to being in-country because longer lead times and a more measured pace around building a portfolio. As we developed our program at QIC to include a lot more co-investments, participating periodically in the secondaries market, it became very clear that we needed to be in-country to do that. And so Relocating here has just given me a much better ability to maintain a deep and vibrant network, to be part of transacting, particularly around co-investments, where time and efficiency is critical. The lack of jet lag, I've got to say, was an absolute joy. I I spent a good 10 or 12 years travelling from Australia to the US and other parts of the world, which, as I say, was fascinating. But to actually be in your target market in the time zone has been a joy as well. So a richer ability to develop relationships, a much better ability to invest in co-investments and opportunities where time and efficiency is a really important factor. And you draw an important point when it comes to co-investments. And then I don't know if this is too blunt, but a need for speed and the ability to give a fast no. And certainly you can do that more easily if you're less physically distant? Look, I think so. And and certainly that's the philosophy of the QIC PE team, to make those decisions which involve judgment and to make them in a way where you're quite right. A quick no is much better than a slow no. And at times, depending on the opportunity and the pace, those positive decisions need to be get made quickly as well. So no in-country presence is critical. Let's talk a little bit about QIC. I often hear QAC categorized as a sovereign wealth fund. Whatever that means, I don't think sovereign wealth funds are terribly well understood, nor are they a homogenous group of allocators. And you add to that the fact that QAC operates in the Australian market on behalf of Australian beneficiaries. And structurally, and for lots of other reasons, it's different from, say, a, a US public pension fund. So, what is special that maybe the audience isn't as familiar with when it comes to the Australian investor universe. Some people have some understanding about superannuation funds, for example, in terms of how they're structurally mandated to act and and also the kind of choice that the underlying individual investors have and the transparency that's been so much a feature of the Australian market. Sure. Look, QIC, I would say is the best of a few worlds when I think about its profiles as an asset manager. So to start with QIC first, 
We're a wholesale asset manager owned by the Queensland government. The Queensland government defined benefit plan, which is the pool of capital we started our program with, is essentially we see it as house capital. So in that regard, QIC does have a sovereign wealth fund flavour to it. And I think critically with that pool of capital, given its house money, so Queensland government money, we operate with a principal investor mindset. We really have to do our own cooking in the programs that we build and the portfolios we build for that and also third-party clients. So it's part sovereign wealth fund, but in a wholesale asset manager environment. And we have over 100 independent third-party clients as well. It's an interesting mix. The Australian superannuation industry of that sector, as it relates to private equity, it has many characteristics that make it a good marriage with private equity. Servicing long-dated sticky pools of capital where there's a very strong focus on accumulating member accounts and, and member value over time, that plays well to long-dated strategies and that plays well to what I think is the essence of private equity, which is focused, determined accumulation of value over longer periods of time as against the public markets. But you're right, the market itself, the structure of the super industry does have a strong focus on fees that I think does distinguish it from other parts of the global market. So the super fund industry is very discerning. There is this fee focus, which I think gives it very much a perspective of value for money. There's a lot of cross-comparing and assessment as against other asset classes. That really drives this need for fee transparency and a question for good value for, for money, good value for MER budgets. So a collection of characteristics there, which I think makes it a little different to other pension sectors around the world. So Steve, I know that your portfolio includes a meaningful exposure into venture capital and into technology. Surely it helps, uh, as you said, being in the Bay Area and close to a lot of those firms. And we've heard so many people comment on how tech has been a bright spot in their portfolios. It's also just been a bright spot in the economy more generally. So I'm curious as to what you're seeing in your portfolio and also what gives you hope that we'll navigate our way out of this pandemic and where tech might fit into that. Yeah, as you say, Jen, Technology and innovation strategies play a very big role in our, our portfolio. So for clients, that represents between 30 or 40% of their portfolios, depending on the client. That's been one of the great joys of, of living in this part of the world is to be close to that sector and to see the extraordinary evolution and growth of that sector over the last 10 years. We've been lucky enough to have some of the best venture capital firms really in the world, in our portfolio. And to see their portfolios has been just a fascinating bird's eye view. I think what has really struck me has been the explosion and the sophistication around all things enterprise and the sort of digital enablement of that. Software collaboration tools like Slack, we're using Zoom at the moment and now has really become a primary platform for commercial engagement, particularly through COVID, that evolution of how an enterprise operates and how we do business as enabled by tech has been fascinating. Before we moved here, my family didn't really shop online. It's now again accelerated through COVID. The options, the sophistication and the platforms that are so readily available to us 
through the digital world has, again, been fascinating to see, be they marketplaces, be they digitally native brands. There have been so many that have sprung to life over the last 10 years. Again, really fascinating to see that from the vantage point of living here. And finally, the evolution of system integrity around cybersecurity, payment processing, really giving all of us the confidence that digital transactions and and our digital life is being secured and protected. And it's not to say that bad actors don't occasionally breach those walls, but just to see the growth of those businesses and those platforms has been fascinating. So an amazing 10 years in, in that regard. And to have a to have a sense of that through close proximity to those firms and many of those businesses has been a real privilege. And I have to believe too that another fascinating aspect of being a venture investor and investing into tech is a window into the future, a window into those things that will change our lives going forward. We've talked about, there are some things that have emerged that were not new. They existed before the onset of COVID and the pandemic, but they've been accelerated over the course of the pandemic, and even surprises on the upside. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think for me, the explosion of telemedicine this year has been very interesting to see. And the evolution and march towards telemedicine predates COVID. But talk about the right opportunity and the right platform at the right time. You know, For it to be scalable in the way that we've seen this year has been very beneficial for people, obviously. And as an investor, remarkable to see because the growth has been profound. That's one area that's really come through strongly for me. Another area is more a sort of a, a Gen Y or Gen Z phenomenon, but is the growth of not just social media, but online places to meet and to share experiences. We subscribe to Fortnite in this household and owned by Epic Games. And aside from the main game itself, I thought it was fascinating how the Travis Scott concert that Fortnite hosted early this year because Coachella had been suspended through COVID. Um, 12-minute concert online, it actually generated as much revenue as Coachella generated over two weeks last year through many millions of users jumping on that platform and, and experiencing that concert. And that's not to say that it should be a substitute for children getting outside and moving, but that creation of a metaverse is well underway. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that evolves over the next five years or so. As the parent of a Fortnite devotee, I'll say it's been a lifesaver in COVID because of that community that's been created. I think shocking that one Trevor Smith concert could outpace all of Coachella. That's fascinating. One thing you and I have talked about a lot is this secular trend that's been happening for a while of VC and PE-backed companies staying private longer. If we take a step back and think of it from the allocator's perspective, it can be good for investors like you who have exposure to these underlying companies to your venture capital portfolio, maybe not as good for the retail investors who want access to these companies through their defined contribution 401k portfolios. So how do you think about that tension and the impact on investors and really society more broadly? Probably from a, a selfish perspective, I'd like less capital to stay out of the private equity sector than the more. But as I say, that's that's very much from a more self-centered perspective as an investor into it. That aside, it certainly is the case that all manner of companies are staying private for longer, from the venture capital and tech sector through to 
the buyout sector, entrepreneurs and company management have been embracing the benefits of private ownership where there is an attractive and powerful marriage of capital and management and that alignment that results over longer periods of time. I think there is a steady march of aggregators and wealth management platforms that are looking to marry individual investors and the private equity sector. We see that down in Australia. That's certainly happening here in the US and through Asia particularly. I think what you'll see is a greater number of wealth management platforms being that more that channel for individual investors into the sector. And I think that will continue. A lot of private equity firms also have their own initiatives around trying to tap into the retail market. And increasingly, that's proving successful for them. I think we will see more, call it retail investors in the private equity sector. It's happening gradually at the moment, and I think that'll probably accelerate. It's a topic Melissa and Ma and I talked about a little bit, this democratization of the industry and how fast is it likely to happen? And, you know, a key feature here is one of scale and getting that fee blend right so that you both make it an attractive business model for the private equity firms offering an avenue for the retail investor, while also understanding that going back to the Australian example, retail investors are much more sensitive to the fee for value part of the equation. So perhaps an incremental and a long pathway there. Just to wrap up, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about you, Steve. We've discussed that you're relocating to Brisbane next year after 10 years now in the States. What are you going to miss most about the U.S.? And when you first moved to the U.S., what did you miss most about back home? Jen, what I'll miss about the U.S. and living here in the Bay Area is probably the experience that my family and I had moving here was just I think the warmth of our American hosts, it was so easy to meet people here with a sort of warm, accepting community up here in the North Bay area. It was very easy to get settled and feel at home. That's not to say that you don't get that reception down in Australia, but it was a great part of our experience here. I think the other thing that I've enjoyed is being part of a big country and a big market. That has been a really fascinating experience. The US is such a large multifaceted country, a lot of cultural nuance across the country itself. It's been great fun to have lived in that and have experienced elements of it. And it's a beautiful place. California is just delightful. You don't get many mountains in Australia. I love skiing. So to be close to the Sierras and close to the Rockies and be able to access that, that, that's been a joy in terms of my own personal passion of skiing. What I'm looking forward to in Australia is always that happiness and the comfort of going to a home environment, but it's probably the coffee. Australia has got a great coffee culture. And if there is one area where I would really encourage Americans to look at Australia for an example on, it's coffee. Australia has so many wonderful independent cafes and great coffee. I have missed that since I've been here. You know, there's a so-called Australian coffee shop across the street from Ilpa's offices And my Australian colleague will often lament the fact that just because you sell avocado toast does not make you a legitimate Australian coffee shop. So we're all missing out. (laughs) You've got two girls. What are you doing on a beautiful Saturday here or back in Australia? We're playing a lot of tennis with my two daughters. That is our sort of get out of the house and get moving activity. I go for long walks around Mount Tam 
with my wife and my two daughters, but the activity that I really enjoy on a Saturday morning is playing tennis. So we've been doing a lot of that. This year's been a huge challenge for all of us. I think all of us periodically sit back and think about identifying the silver lining around the cloud. And to me, the silver lining has been spending a lot of time with my family. It's been a joy, actually. My daughters are 20 and 17, so they're at an age where they otherwise would be very much doing their own thing. So to have them around the house and to be able to have long family dinners at the end of a End of a challenging day on a video conference and managing remote communication has been, uh, as I say, a real silver lining around the current environment. I could not agree more. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insight today, Steve. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jen. 